You know, it was just a few years ago that the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. Do you guys remember that? There's been a lot of losses since then, but it was great a few years ago, wasn't it? Do you remember Vaughn Miller? He was the MVP, and, and uh, we beat the Panthers, you know, who, who had a better record and were expected to win. We kind of upset them, and Peyton Manning was the quarterback, and then we had the big parade in Denver. They said over a million people came for the parade. Is that incredible? I think no one in the city, in fact, nobody in the state of Colorado was at work that day. Everybody was at the parade. I mean, it was majestic there in front of the Capitol, the big banner, world champions. Whoa. Doesn't happen that often. It's pretty special. Unfortunately, right after we won the Super Bowl, the team on a steep decline, not even making the playoffs. Coach Kubiak quits. Peyton Manning retires. Brock Osweiler takes over. The city of Denver is in a deep depression. Very sad. It's hard. It's hard because sometimes there's like the thrill of victory, but there is also the agony of defeat, isn't there? Sometimes we're winning. Sometimes we're losing. Sometimes we're losing really, really bad. And unfortunately, a lot of people's spiritual life is kind of like the Broncos the last few seasons, you know? You may look at your own spiritual life and say, man, I'm winning the Super Bowl. Or you may say, I was 5-11 and 11 last season. You may say, I fumbled the ball on the goal line or I scored a touchdown after time had expired. Maybe you look at your own personal spiritual journey and you're like, man, I'm not winning with Christ. I'm not winning in the spirit the way that I would like to be. I am so glad you're here today because we're going to talk about experiencing God's spiritual victory in our lives. Did you know that God wants you to be victorious? And you know what? If you're in Christ, you already are victorious. Amen? You are victorious. And God wants you to walk in victory. It's one thing to be victorious. It's another thing to walk victoriously. And I want to talk to you today about how we can walk in a victorious manner. How can you get up in the morning and, and, and have the swag of a Super Bowl champion? Amen? How can, how can we walk in victory? How can we live as an overcomer? Now, that's the Bible word, overcomer. Victorious. I want us to look at it today as we wrap up our study from the book of 1 John. As we look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, God wants you to win. Now, when you're winning in the spirit, that means you're conquering fear. You are overcoming temptation. You are living by faith. You're experiencing joy. You're persevering through hardship. That's being victorious. Amen? That's victorious Christian living. So how do we do this? Well, how can I be an overcomer? I overcome, first of all, by believing in Jesus. And check this out. John, the gospel writer, who wrote the gospel of John, also wrote the letter of John, 1 John, and he said this in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. <clears throat> That's Jesus. And then in verse 4, because everyone 
who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has been conquered, the con has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's your recipe for victory to be an overcomer. Jesus is the Son of God. It starts in faith. And in verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, the beginning of our spiritual journey starts at the moment we confess Christ as the Lord of our life. Sometimes I talk to people about their faith and they say, well, I've just always believed. I've just always believed. I'm like, that's incredible because when I was 18 months old, I don't know if I believed in anything really other than mama and maybe some milk and whatever. Listen, you may not remember the exact moment that you believed, but there was a moment. Every single person who's a follower of Jesus, that faith journey started in a particular instance, maybe it was at a church service, maybe it was at a camp, maybe it was at a, a friend's home over a cup of coffee. You may not know exactly when that moment is, but there was a moment. And the moment that you believed in the Son of God was the moment that you began to take this spiritual journey towards victory, becoming an overcomer. He whoever believes, whoever believes that Jesus is born of God. I mean, in other words, that he is the Christ. Now, we call Jesus Christ, but Christ is not his last name, right? It's not like, you know, John Smith, Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. It's based on who he is. The Christ means the anointed one, the chosen one, the son of God. And in ancient times, people received names by either who their father was or what they did. Jesus the Christ. Not first name Jesus, last name Christ, you know. Middle initial, I don't know, whatever that is, you know. He's Jesus the Christ. He's the chosen one. He's the only begotten of the Father. And by the way, there is no one who is like Jesus. There's no one that's like him. That's why our faith and our trust is in him. And it says here that we have to be born of God. I mean, you know, the beginning of this faith journey begins by being born of God. Have you been born of God? And have you put your faith in Christ? Have you been born of God? The, the, the Bible calls it being born again, being born a second time. You're born physically in the flesh. You're born spiritually the moment that Christ comes into your life. You're born again. And the scriptures tell us we were once dead, and now if we're in Christ, we're alive. The old person's passed away, all things have become new. That's, that's true in the picture of baptism. Baptism is a picture of the old life being crucified and the new life being resurrected. And now if you're in Christ, God wants you to live a resurrected life, and a resurrected life is a victorious life. Amen? It's victorious. It is. So we were dead and now we are alive. Listen, what we needed was a savior. What we needed was a savior. We didn't need a psychologist because we didn't need behavior modification. If God would have wanted us to have better finances, he would have sent us a financial planner. If he wanted us to have more education, he would have sent us a professor. 
God sent us a savior because we needed to be redeemed. We once were in the darkness, we once were dead, and now we have been made alive in Christ. We now are walking in victory. And he says here, uh, you have conquered the world. I mean, that's a great term. Have you ever felt, I have conquered the world? I mean, it's an awesome thing. It's an amazing thing. When you believe in Jesus, you're an overcomer. And this word in verses four and five that's translated overcome or victory. It's translated, there's four times in verses four and five, the same word is used. It's the word that we get the English word Nike from. How about that? I wore my Nike. Do you like, I like my Nikes today. The word Nike means victorious. It means to, to win, right? What a great name for a shoe. I love, Nike is my shoe of choice. Do we have any Nike fans here? Anybody got some Nikes on? Anybody love Nikes? Come on now. Listen, every time you put on those Nikes, I want you to remind yourself you're an overcomer in Jesus Christ. How about that? You're victorious. You believed in him. You're winning. You're winning. Victorious. Overcomer. Overcomer. Now, it's one thing to tell yourself something and it's another thing to live it out, isn't it? I mean, we can tell ourselves a lot of things. You may be thinking, Pastor, you don't know my life. I'm not feeling so victorious. I get it. I do. Earlier this week, I had a dream. And there was a message in the dream. The message was, Ryan, you need to move to L.A. to help LeBron resurrect the Lakers. I've never had a dream like that. I woke up and I was like, Lord, God, wait a second. What am I going to do? I know I'm a little past my prime. I doubt LeBron is going to call. And I could tell myself that over and over and over again. I'm going to be victorious with the Lakers. That's probably not a reality. I think I'm going to stay at Edge Church. How about that? I'm just going to stick right here. Because I want to be victorious where God has planted me. Right? It's one thing to just tell yourself something over and over and over again. It's another thing to really experience it. Isn't it? And God wants us to experience something. And what he has put in his word is not just hocus pocus like you know, weirdo dream kind of stuff like Ryan, join the Lakers. This is real stuff. You can be victorious in your spiritual life. You can. Now, do you have to work on your spiritual life? Do you, like an athlete, have to exercise? Do you have to grow? Do you have to mature? Of course you do. Of course you do. But you're working from the place of victory, not for the victory. Amen? That's the difference. That's the difference. So it begins with being born of God. It begins by that faith commitment to Jesus Christ. That's how I walk in victory. I'm an overcomer. And this doesn't mean that I have to live like a monk in a monastery. You can be an overcomer in everyday life. Normal people can overcome the world. Did you know that? Normal folks. Normal Christ followers. But I love the confidence of John. He says here, for whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. In other words, victory is expected. 
Don't you love that? I mean, there's some spiritual swag that's going on with John the Apostle. We should wake up in the morning with that same spiritual swag when we begin to get depressed and discouraged and frustrated. You know what? Today, I am overcoming the world. Today, I'm putting my Nikes on. That's what I'm doing. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. That should put a little pep in our step each day as we get out of bed and go through our daily routine. There's a, there's a victory that is expected. Now, we got to know who we believe in. We believe in Jesus. No one has ever done what Jesus has done. Why is Jesus so special? Because there's no one like him. I mean, nobody ever lived the perfect sinless life that he lived. Nobody ever died on a cross and then rose from the grave. That's why our hope is always in him. It's all about him. There's nobody like Jesus. And John describes Jesus in a variety of capacities through his book. In chapter 1, verse 1, he calls him Jesus the Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he calls him the word of life. In chapter 4, verse 2, he calls him God in the flesh. In chapter 4, verse 10, he's our propitiation. In chapter 4, verse 14, he is God's son, the savior of the world. That's why our trust is in him. So we overcome by believing in Jesus. But check it out. The scripture goes on and it says we also overcome by loving others. We've looked at this theme through the book of John. You want to be a victorious Christian, you have to love other people. You got to operate in love. You can't say that you love God and hate his children. How weird is that? I mean, if somebody came to my wife and said, Gina, I love you, but I can't stand your husband, how would that be? How would that go? It'd be a little odd, wouldn't it? Right? Listen, a lot of people say they love God, but they don't love the people of God. That's why we need the local church. The local church is all about the place where people come to love each other. It's about the love. This is a big family that's here. And you know what? When you've been a part of the family, you will at times feel closer to people in your spiritual family than maybe you do in your own biological family. Some of you have found that to be true, haven't you? Yeah. You got some friends, you got some relationships here. That's what the church is about. It's about the family of God. And when we love God, we have to love his people. We can't divide the two. It doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Now look at what he says here in chapter five, verse two. This is how we know that we love God's children. And then he goes on and explains it. In other words, when you love God, you'll love his kids. And then in chapter four, verse seven, he says, let us love one another for love comes from God. I mean, again, if love comes from God and I don't love other people, then there's something wrong with my love for the Lord. There's something wrong with it. Uh, you don't have to just have a relationship with God. You've got to have a relationship with his children too. And faith and love go together. They cannot be separated. Uh, being born again results from a healthy love life. And that's the way it works. Several years ago, there was a church in Tennessee that wanted to help us start our church here in Colorado. It was a great church, a fantastic church. They called me and they said, Ryan, we want you to bring the, the whole family to Tennessee and spend a week with us. We're gonna have a conference where we're 
uh, bringing in missionaries and church starters all over the country, and we want to help you guys. And I was like, I was like, I have two kids in preschool. Are you sure that you want to do this? And they're like, absolutely. So flew the family to Tennessee. We got there. They enrolled my kids in their uh, Christian uh, preschool that they had at the church. They gave them T-shirts, made them honorary students in the preschool. They had a store there that they had converted uh, out of a classroom at the church that they had, they made like a, a store where any of the kids could come by and get toys or school supplies or just candy or whatever you could imagine. My kids were going crazy. I mean, they were like stuffing their pockets, embarrassing themselves. They threw parties for the kids. Uh, it was just an amazing thing. It really was. We had a fantastic week. And when I left there, I thought, this was magnificent, and I felt so much love. Now, I didn't feel love because I had gotten a bunch of stuff in the store. I felt love because my kids were loved. In essence, the father felt love because the children were loved. Amen? And I wonder if that's a picture of God's relationship with us. When, when we love each other, when we love the children, we're actually loving the father. Amen? You want to love me, love my kids. You want to love the father, love his children. That's why John says, you got to love one another. You're going to be spiritually victorious. Practice love. Let love be the value that you focus on most. Let love be what your life is about. You belong to the family of God, and we got to, we got to love one another. Our hearts should always be for each other and for the church because that's where we experience love. So I'll overcome by believing in Jesus, by loving others. But check it out. There's a third thing, and that is by obeying God's commands. Three times in verses 2 through 3, he uses the word commands. Love and obey go together. They really do. Too many people want the blessings of God, but they don't want to follow his instructions. Now check this out. If you want God to bless your life, if you want to be victorious, you got to do what he said to do. Right? It's one thing to pray, God, bless me. It's another thing to do what the commandments have said and then to say, God, bless me. Right? God may be waiting on some obedience in our lives before the blessing comes. There's always a blessing tied to obedience. Check it out. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. So this is, this is how we really know we love God. Are we willing to do it? Are we willing to do it? A lot of people talk a big game. A lot of people say a lot of stuff. What we do reveals what we really love, not just what we say. That's what he means here. In verse 3, look at this. For this is what love for, love for God is, to keep his commandments and check it out. And his commandments are not, say it with me, burdensome. Have you ever looked at the Bible and thought, oh my gosh, that is awful. I can't do that. What a burden. Following Jesus stinks. Following Jesus is going to damage me. I mean, God is holding back on me. I want to give you some examples of what it means to follow, to follow the commandments. Because... This is a huge part with God. Now, God has a love language. You know what God's love language is? Obedience. <laughs> it's what we do. You want to tell God you love him, obedience. Gina and I took a little test 
that was put out by a guy named Gary Chapman called The Love Languages. Have you guys ever taken that, The Love Languages? There's five love languages. He wrote a great book. A lot of people read the book. And there's five love languages. Gina's love language is acts of kindness and giving and receiving gifts. She loves that. And when we first started talking about this, I was like, all right, baby, talk to me about this gift thing, because that's kind of like foreign to me. I was like, do the gifts have to be expensive? And she said, no, they don't have to be expensive, but they, got, they need to be thoughtful. Like, I want to know that you're paying attention to the things that I like. And I'm like, you're so hard to buy for, you know? I mean, like, I don't know, like, I want to get you some clothes or some jewelry, but I always get the wrong thing and all that. So we had that whole discussion. Gina's love language is acts of service, uh, uh, giving gifts. Mine, totally different. Other part of the universe. Mine is words of affirmation and physical touch. Now, I'm not like Joe Biden, okay? <laughs> but I do like to hug and shake hands and, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Don't judge me. A good compliment for me can last like, Oh, man, like a moth. Oh, I love a good compliment. Amen. You want to get me fired up. I don't, the gifts I could care less about. Give me some compliments. I love that. It's my love language. Woo. Come on. God has a love language. You know what it is? Obey the commandments. Do what I said. Now, how is it that the commandments of God are not a burden? Well, let's look if you would, with me at a few examples of this. Leviticus 19.28 says, Do not put tattoos or marks on yourself. I am the Lord. And so in the Old Covenant, in the book of Leviticus, it says basically don't get tattoos. Now why did God say that? By the way, there's a lot of bizarre stuff in the Old Testament. And for 2,000 years, Christians have not followed the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel because those were commands that were given to the Israelites for a particular time in a particular instant. As, the, as, as Christ's followers, we follow the moral law of God, okay, which is a whole other discussion. But let's just think for just a minute about some of these commands that God gave that really sound really bizarre, don't they? Well, we know that in the times of the Bible, in the Old Testament, that ancient and Near Eastern cultures would tattoo themselves as part of the worship of idols. So if an Israelite had a tattoo, it could communicate that they too worshiped idols. And so the reason that God said, don't get tattoos to the Israelites is because he wanted his people to be set apart. He said, I don't want you to act like the pagans, amen? Now, again, we don't follow that anymore because that was given for a particular time in a particular instance. All I want you to see today is that God has a reason for every command. Everything that's in the Bible, there's a reason that's there. Uh, one of the other more bizarre uh, commandments in, in the, the law was uh, if you relieved yourself, you had to cover your stuff in the woods. Why would God put that in the Bible? I mean, that's bizarre. Well, just think about it. If you had a million people going out into the woods and relieving themselves and not covering it and they didn't have waste management, that's nasty. 
Maybe God knew something that people don't know. I got another one. The Old Testament says don't eat pork and don't eat shellfish. Why would God say, what's wrong with some ham? I like some ham. Did you know that ham and shellfish are some of the greatest carriers of disease of anything that we could eat? Today, we have all kinds of modern technology. We have so much, so much knowledge about what times of the year. You wouldn't just go pick up a shellfish on a beach, I hope, and eat that, right? Probably not, right? What God was saying to the Israelites is, I don't want you to get sick. Stick with the chicken and the beef, amen? That's a lot safer. By the way, it's probably better for you anyway, right? God has a reason for every command. Even the old ones. But let's move a little bit closer to home. Malachi chapter 2 verse 6. The scripture tells us that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. It doesn't say that God hates divorced people. It says God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce? Why does God say do everything you can to save a marriage? Because divorce is painful. Divorce hurts people. That's why. If you're a teacher and you have kids in your class that are experiencing that at home, you see the pain on their face every day at school. You see how it's hard for them to focus. Their grades decline. It's painful. It's painful. God says, I hate divorce because divorce hurts people. It rips families apart. Sometimes people think, well, this marriage isn't working out. I'm just going to end this one. I'm going to go meet somebody else. But then all of a sudden, you're all alone. And there could be pain in marriage, but there can be pain in ending a marriage, too. God says, I hate divorce. Now, I realize sometimes there's adultery. Sometimes there's abandonment. Sometimes there's abuse. Sometimes marriages just don't work out. I get that. I totally get it. But we ought to do everything we can to save a marriage. Whatever you can do. So, sometimes you can't save one. But we ought to do everything we can do to save one. Because God hates divorce. That's why that, that, that's, that's one of the commands of scripture. We ought to esteem marriage more than our culture does. Our culture kind of says, well, it's no big deal. Just go find somebody else, you know? We ought to esteem it. God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. Um, with our sexuality, 1 Thessalonians 4.8 says, God's will is for us to be sexually pure. Why would God say something like that? Did you know there's a lot of problems when people are sleeping together that shouldn't be. There's a lot of problems that comes from that, right? Unexpected pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, a bonding takes place, the Bible says, when people come together sexually. Have you ever wondered, why can she not break up with him? He's crazy. When you start sleeping with somebody, you have a bond that comes together. It's hard to pull apart, and God knew that. And that's why he said, save that for marriage. Save that for the home. People think today, well, I'll just live together and it doesn't matter. Did you know that people that live together before they're married, the, 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 the divorce rate increases by 50%? It does. That's secular studies. Red Book Magazine came out, which is hardly a gospel magazine. Red Book Magazine. They came out with a study a few years ago. It's kind of an old study, but... They came out a few years ago, and the study said the people that enjoy sex the most are people who are married. It's amazing. God knew all of that, and that's why he's given us 
his commands here related to sex and to the family. What about, what about giving? What about giving? You know, uh, when we talk about giving, a lot of times people think about fundraising. You know, like, oh, the Girl Scouts sell cookies and the school sells candy bars and the church is having a drive. You know, no, there's a lot more to it than that. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 says that we should bring the first tenth of our income to the house of worship. Why did God say that? Well, he wanted us to protect our heart from greed. That's the whole deal with the tithe. The tithe is teaching us to put God first above our own selves. That's what tithing is. That sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? It sounds kind of awkward, kind of odd. God knows that we can become self-reliant. He knows that we can become prideful and greedy. But when we are generous, we fight greed. That's why he said we ought to bring the tithe. God had a reason. He had a reason for every single one of these commands. And it's easier to disobey than it is to obey. And in the moment, it looks better to do our own thing. But over the long term, God's way always works. It really does. We have a cafeteria approach many times. We pick and choose the things we like from the Bible. But listen, when we follow God's commands, we discover this. His commandments are not a burden. They're a blessing. They're a blessing. God has a reason. Now, my kids were walking with me through a dark parking lot a few years ago, and I was screaming at them, get in the car, get in the car. And they were playing video games on their tablets. And you know how kids are, they can walk into, they can walk in the middle of the street, they can walk into people, they have no idea. They're like robots, they're like playing. And I'm like, get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. And I'm like, you know, get in the car. They're like, dad, what's wrong? Once we got in the car, I was like, there was a really creepy dude that was coming towards the car. And I was telling you guys to get in the car and you guys were playing video games and you weren't listening. And I said this to my kids. I said, listen, I'm your father. And when I ask you to do something, I always have a reason, even if you don't know what the reason is. Now that's some good parenting, isn't it? I said, I may not have time to explain to you why I just told you, get in the car. But if I tell you to get in the car, get in the car. Kids were like, yes, sir, dad. God's commands are to protect us, to watch over us, to help us. That's why they're not a burden. They're a blessing, not a burden. They're a blessing, not a burden. Well, our primary motivation is love, not fear. It is the whole book of 1 John is that God is love. And when we experience God's love, we want to love his people. When we experience God's love, we want to do what the fathers ask us to do, even if it's not something we fully understand. Why did God say this? I don't know if we'll ever understand why every commandment is in there. We probably won't. But you know what? We can trust the heart of the Father who is directing us and leading us along the way. I want you today to leave this room feeling like a Super Bowl champ, ready to go to the parade of victory. And one day when we get to heaven, we're going to celebrate all of the victories that we've had here on earth. Let's give God some praise today. Let's put our hands together for Jesus. Let's just tell God thank you for all the great things he's done for us.
Because we can be victorious by believing in Jesus, by loving others, and by obeying his commands. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.